Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 3 of the Evan Lamb Show. I'm your host, Evan Lamb. And in today's episode, as usual, we will be going over the weekly news highlights and then diving into two uh, deeper topics. Usually it's just one, but today we have two. The first one being, is the situation between Ukraine and Russia the same as the situation between Taiwan and mainland China? And the second topic being, why anti-communism isn't real. All right, let's get started. For our weekly updates this week, the main highlights were really just the COVID situation. On January 24th, the numbers are 15 additional local cases, 36 additional overseas cases. Over the past week, COVID cases have gone up 224 additional local cases, with local cases outnumbering overseas cases on a couple days, which is usually unusual, but with Omicron, you know, cases just spread this quick. Two main outbreak areas traced, uh, this place in Kaohsiung, a port, and uh, cases that spread from the Taoyuan International Airport to surrounding areas. So these are the two main cases that have been able to be traced and tracked. Other areas where cases have appeared but haven't been traced are a case in the Taipei Grand Hotel, which is this huge, huge hotel in an area called Junshan. If you know what it looks like, it's unmistakable. It's this huge hotel with traditional Chinese architecture. You see it when when you're taking the uh, subway uh, on, it, on the elevated tracks, every time you pass by the area, you can see it. It's on this hill, super visible. So anyways, there's been cases there, and then also at the Evergreen Resort Hotel. The uptake in cases has led more people to get vaccines, uh, mainly the third dose. In Taiwan, vaccines are not as widely available as they are here in the United States. Um, there is an appointment system. Most people want Moderna because per- the perception, I think the perception now, whether it's in the United States or Taiwan, or maybe other parts of the world, is that Moderna is better at preventing infection or serious illness than Pfizer and other brands. I don't know if that's actually scientific, but I think that is the perception. Partly because I believe the dose in Moderna shots is larger than the dose in Pfizer. There has been some friction between local governments and the central government. The city makes reservations of vaccines based on the population need and they tell the central government they have a system, but the central government hasn't provided some cities, um, we know including Taipei, the capital, with enough vaccines. They are short on Moderna vaccines or they haven't supplied it to the city of Taipei yet. Taiwan, you know, as the cases have increased over the past week, uh, there have been numerous discussions about how to begin to learn to live with the virus. Up until now, the only two countries really in the world pursuing a zero COVID policy is the uh, People's Republic of China in mainland China and Republic of China in Taiwan. However, I think we are beginning to see that a zero case COVID policy is um, very unfeasible in uh, many, many situations, including Taiwan. As we see these cases breaking through and Obicon spreading, it is proof that the zero uh, case uh, COVID policy is faltering. The government is unclear on whether they are pursuing coexistence with the virus or pursuing zero cases. In some uh, situations, they are being very strict about quarantine requirements. For example, coming back to the country, how long you have to quarantine, how you have to continuously report to the uh, government about your symptoms, um, how you cannot leave the hotel or you cannot leave the house, things like that. So in some cases, they're being very strict. And in other cases, well, 
um, you can tell that they really not aren't enforcing the same zero COVID policy and containment as mainland China. Because when they find cases, they don't straight up shut down the entire area like they do in mainland China. They don't shut down all the businesses and all the areas, but rather they resort to mass testing, quarantine, and disinfecting certain places. This in and of itself is already not a completely zero COVID policy because you're dealing with breakthroughs in a society through locally transmitted infections. The only country right now really that is pursuing absolutely zero COVID cases is mainland China. But zero COVID has lots of negative implications. Businesses, economies, schools, you know, they shut down and basic living standards goes down. In mainland China, recently, when the city was shut down, grocery stores closed and people needed to pick up groceries that the government distributed. And sometimes the government didn't distribute enough groceries and people had to scramble for the groceries that were dropped off um, by themselves. People were forced to stay put or quarantine in a certain area for days or weeks. Government does not, the mainland government does not allow people to leave their house at all, only under very, very strict and conditional circumstances. And in certain areas, quarantine requirements were handled so poorly that people who needed medical attention at hospitals were denied it because they could not prove that they did not have COVID-19. So the zero COVID case policy, as it is enforced in mainland China, has a lot negative implications but at the same time it's worked very low number of cases and deaths you know compare that with the united states we're the opposite we're the extreme opposite of living with the virus u.s has had record number of cases and deaths throughout every stage of the pandemic at this stage we have virtually no shutdowns but only mostly uh widespread mask wearing and vaccinated people in certain areas of the country. However, because of Omicron, still too many people are getting sick and straining the hospital system. The economy is moving, but inflation caused, caused from supply chain issues and possibly giving out too much money during last year's stimulus bill has uh, gotten worse. So, you know, increased spending from stimulus bill, higher demand of consumer products uh, at the same time as supply chain issues and fewer products available has led to pretty bad inflation. And because of the insane amount of cases, people have stopped going out and, and um, going to different places, which has harmed local businesses anyways. So, you know, on the one hand, you have mainland China, where even though it, it has um, tried to do a zero COVID case policy, but it's still getting more and more cases and closing down places time and time again will have a lasting impact on people's livelihood, not just economy. And here you have the United States not closing down places, not quarantining really, living with the virus, but with huge amount of cases and huge amount of deaths and a very strained hospital system. So for Taiwan, you know, the government needs to have a clear guidance on how to live with the virus if they do not want to pursue a zero case COVID policy like mainland China. What is their tolerance level for the amount of cases? Are they still gonna quarantine? Are they gonna close down businesses? How are they gonna balance that with the economy and people's livelihoods and people's actual lives? People need guidance and they're not having that guidance right now. But hopefully, the government will act quickly, provide new policy, provide new guidance in this Omicron variant stage and for future stages of the pandemic. All right, enough about COVID. Another news, uh, I don't know if this is a highlight, but I thought it was pretty cool. McDonald's Taiwan has announced special Chinese New Year themed items, including these cool new, like, I don't know if these return every single year. I think they do. But there's these special Chinese New Year burgers, and I'm just quoting, translated, it's a big thick patty with a rich black pepper sauce and onion. Uh, that sounds 
very interesting. It costs around 80 uh, new Taiwanese dollars, which is around $2.89 US dollars. And um, also, they announced the return of hash browns because I guess they don't always have hash browns. But in general, that sounds pretty cool. I know from the times I've been to Taiwan and Hong Kong, McDonald's, there is just better. I'm sorry. The ones in the US are, they're, they're just not as good. Yeah, I mean, like the Hong Kong ones are super fancy. They have a super fancy cafe, nice like coffee, mocha, latte drinks. They got these cool drinks, like, uh, I don't know, like, like slushies. I don't know if they're slushies, but they're like fruit drinks, mango drinks. Their food, the burger tastes better. It looks nicer. Um, in Taiwan, I don't know if you can still do this, but back in the day when Kung Fu Panda came out, you know how in the movie Kung Fu Panda has like models of each uh of each person each like animal in the in their i don't know what they called it furious five their kung fu group or whatever back in the day mcdonald's had those toys that were similar so you can just go up there and buy the happy meal toys without actually buying the meal which is lit because obviously if i'm going back to taiwan i probably don't want to eat the happy meal there's better things to eat there but you can just buy the toys i don't know if you can still do that now but it's pretty awesome but uh yeah that's it for the news updates, um, and we will take a quick break before continuing with the idea or with the topic of whether the situation in Ukraine, what is it right now, and is it similar to the situation in Taiwan? Welcome back, everyone. Now to talk about the more serious topics. Well, not the more serious. COVID was pretty serious. But the other topic is, is the situation between Ukraine and Russia currently the same as the situation between Taiwan and China? And why do I ask this? Because people often compare how Russia wants to take over Ukraine the same as how mainland China wants to take over Taiwan. Let's see what the situation in Ukraine is like. So if you've been watching the news, you probably know that the situation in Ukraine is pretty tense. Basically, Russia has amassed more than 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, and they're mobilizing more and more forces uh, by the border every single day. Even as Russian and U.S. officials have continued talking for almost a month now, Russians have continued to send more troops and equipment to the border. In response, U.S. has allowed surrounding NATO countries to send equipment and support into Ukraine. Ukraine is not part of NATO, but it is surrounded by NATO countries. At the moment, the US is considering sending about 8,500 8, troops uh, and warship aircraft from the US and other parts of Europe to the surrounding area in Eastern Europe, but not into Ukraine. In addition, the United States and the United Kingdom have told families of uh, embassy employees in U the Ukrainian capital to leave the country. NATO announced just today to send more troops, jets, and ships to Eastern European countries. So the situation there has, uh, has uh, you know, been pretty tense. This is, there's a lot of troops, you know, from the Russians and the US and NATO slowly sending more and more to that area. You know, like I mentioned, some people say the Chinese government is observing the United States response to Ukraine to see how they could navigate uh, taking over Taiwan and what would the global response be if they did. I think there is definitely a level to that. I mean, China is probably watching this very closely. The whole world is watching this very closely. But I think a few things that make this situation different. From what we know, you know, Putin 
the Russian president, wants to restore the former glory of the Soviet Union, and he believes that Ukraine and its people are undoubtedly part of Russia and are Russian. Past Ukraine, he also wants to extend the Russian sphere of influence to other parts of Eastern Europe, reducing and weakening the NATO presence there. Putin seems very willing to flex his muscles and bluff uh, and at least look like he's prepping for an attack. 100,000 troops is way past the regular amount of troops involved in a military exercise. But who knows what Putin really wants? Putin may not care much for his global reputation. Will he attack? Nobody knows. I think the uh, American intelligence believes that Putin is not planning to attack yet. Um, and... There's a lot of risks if he attacks. If he attacks, the United States and NATO will probably will definitely act in some way or the other. Will they send troops to actually fight? I don't know. Will sanctions, you know, will they use sanctions? Probably, definitely. Um, if troops actually, if they actually, you know, allow troops to engage Russian forces, it's not going to be good for anyone. Uh, and I don't think Russia wants that either. But, you know, a lot of them are just, they're just flexing their muscles right now. Um... If Putin actually takes over Ukraine, you know, his goal is to begin threatening the other NATO allies in that area. So, you know, just uh, from a big picture, Putin misses the Soviet Union. He wants to restore it to its former glory. He wants Russian influence to be just as strong as it used to be in the entire Eastern European area. Okay, so he wants to extend to other countries is basically what's happening or, you know, extend hard power to his other countries, even if it doesn't mean directly annexing them into Russia. But, you know, let's take a look at China. China, yes, they want to increase their sphere of influence in Asia. But I want to make the case that that is not the same thing. It is not directly tied to them taking over Taiwan, as much as we may like to say that. I don't think it's the same. For the Chinese government, they see Taiwan as an internal affair. They don't have to prove to themselves, to their own people, that this is an internal affair. I mean, people in China see Taiwan as part of China and that they just are taking this place back that, was, that has been unfortunately separated by history and by former Japanese imperialism. So that's their view. Whereas Ukraine, you know, Putin will say that Ukraine and the other Eastern European countries are um, also, you know, just uh, internal or, uh, you know, something that shouldn't uh, necessarily matter to the outside, quote unquote, world. But the fact of the matter is Ukraine and the other Eastern European countries, they are independent countries. They, and some of them are even part of NATO, they're not connected to Russia in the same way that the Chinese government sees Taiwan as connected to it. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the argument of whether uh, Ukraine is part of Russia. I think most people, uh, I think a big case for Ukraine being a separate country is that people in Ukraine are a lot of them are ethnically Ukraine. They're not ethnically Russian. There are ethnically Russians, but the majority are ethnically Ukraine. In Taiwan, most of the people there are ethnically Han Chinese. So I think for China and for other people who see Taiwan as connected to mainland China, there is a bigger case there to be made in that the people there are ethnically Chinese. The culture is ethnically, is culturally Chinese. The language is Chinese. So to the Chinese government, it's a different situation than between Russia and Ukraine. I, and I think globally too. I think globally, people see it as a different situation as well. Now you may say, okay, maybe it's a different situation, but China also 
has increased their military presence just like Russia. That's true, China has increased military presence and exercises, but that is very far from amassing 100,000 troops uh, across the Russian-Ukrainian border as if they were going to invade. China hasn't amassed, at least we don't know, I don't think so, I, we, I think we would know, they haven't amassed a bunch of troops across the Taiwan Strait to prepare for invading Taiwan. Now, China does fly planes uh, around Taiwan's uh, ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone. But honestly, those have just become routine. People in Taiwan don't even care about that anymore because it doesn't affect their daily lives. However, it is tiresome for Republic of China, for Republic of China pilots. So, you know, with, with these routine ADIZ incursions, with China's increased um, military movement in the South China Sea or in those surrounding areas, I don't believe that China wants to forcefully take Taiwan. If Russia doesn't want to forcefully take Ukraine, China doesn't want to forcefully take Taiwan even more. Even with increasingly hawkish Chinese rhetoric, they would much prefer peaceful reunification. China does not want to risk their global reputation by attacking Taiwan, right? China says, and they say, that they want to pursue a future where humans and countries can live together, right? Um, you know, Putin doesn't, Putin isn't really saying that. Putin, I don't know how much he cares for his global reputation, but China cares a lot for their global reputation. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so defensive every time you criticize them. So they don't want to risk their global reputation by attacking Taiwan. And even if they did, if they bomb Taiwan, if they missile them, if they destroy the infrastructure and everything there, you know, what is left for them to take over? They see people in Taiwan as their own people. You know, if you destroy the society and you take it over, you're going to have a whole island of people who will hate you for their entire lives. Will the United States protect Taiwan? Who knows? Will the United States protect Ukraine? Who knows? In both situations, the U.S. has only promised to make sure that Taiwan and Ukraine can defend themselves. The U.S. does not have official relations with the Republic of China, and no commitment to defend and no troops stationed there, unlike with Japan and Korea. And the last thing I want to mention in this is that China sees taking over Taiwan as taking back Taiwan. Taking over Taiwan will increase Chinese presence in the area undoubtedly, but taking over Taiwan is not a sign that China wants to take over Korea and Japan. They don't. I'm almost certain that China has no intention of attacking and taking over Japan and Korea, right? But Putin, if he takes over Ukraine, does he have an intention of taking over the other Eastern European countries? Certainly. So I think the situation in Ukraine is not the same thing as the situation in time in Taiwan. The relationship between Ukraine and Russia is different from the relationship between Taiwan and China. Putin's ambitions are not the same as Xi Jinping's ambitions. Their goals, their reputation on the public stage is not the same either. The only thing that is the same, and actually really isn't because, mm, okay, see we're seeing that the United States is sending troops in, uh, they're sending troops around Ukraine but not into Ukraine, and we don't know if they will actually defend Ukraine through armed forces if Russia attacks. If we saw mainland China amass an army, you know, across the Taiwan Strait, will the U.S. increase troop presence there? I don't know. They already have a ton of troops there, like in, you know, Navy and stuff. They already have a ton of troops in Japan and Korea. Will they send more Navy ships into the area if they see that China is really does want to attack Taiwan? I, I think there's not that big of a chance. You know, for the United States... If they can establish their own semiconductor chain, supply chain, which is their big, uh, that's what President Biden is working on. If they can establish their semiconductor supply chain and not rely on T 
TSMC in Taiwan. And the strategic value for Taiwan in terms of um, supplies, semiconductors, is not as important anymore. Uh, whether Taiwan is a, a, a fort for the U.S. against China, the first line of defense, I don't think that is super as important either because the United States has a lot more investment in Japan and Korea. So do I think the United States will send troops to attack Taiwan? I think the chances to defend Taiwan are lower than the chances to defend Ukraine. As dismaying as that may sound to many of uh, us or you or anybody you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I think Taiwan needs to learn to have the strength and the will to defend itself and rely on itself and not on the United States. Okay, so that is that. Um, we will take a quick break and then come back with our third topic. And last topic for this episode, anti-communism isn't real. We are back. So recently, a couple days ago, President Tsai in Taiwan, recently, her name is Tsai Ing-wen, recently com com commemorated late Republic of China President Jiang Jingguo, who, is the, uh, who was the son of Chiang Kai-shek. Jiang Jingguo was President of the Republic of China from 1978 to 1988. So shortly after his father passed away, to when he passed away. In those 10 years, he was known for his great infrastructure projects that built up modern Taiwan, for ending martial law and dictatorship, ending the ban on freedom of speech and political censorship. He was also known for opening up relations with mainland China to allow old Republic of China veterans who fought in the Chinese Civil War to return to their homes before they passed away. Even though the United States had cut foreign relations with the Republic of China, Chiang initiated reforms that made Taiwan's economy even better. To appeal to international and domestic pressure, he solidified his government's stance to pursue democracy and usher in a new democratic age and be super, super against communism. And this last part, the anti-communist part, is what President Tsai quote, uh, decided to highlight when she was uh, at the commemoration event. Chiang's stance against communism. She said that like Chiang, she and her government and the DPP are similarly against communism. Why? Because to protect Taiwan. In fact, recently a lot of DPP people have criticized, and they've, this has been uh, their criticism over many years now, against the Chinese Nationalist Party, President Chiang's party, the KMT, for being not anti-communist, for being pro-communist, in fact, and selling out Taiwan to China. Now, President Tsai says she's anti-communist to protect Taiwan. And President Chiang in the 80s said he was anti-communist. And why? To protect Taiwan. But there's one big similarity and one big difference between President Tsai and President Chiang's idea of anti-communism. The similarity is that neither of them are actually anti-communist. And what do I mean by that? When the Soviet Union was still around, the Republic of China could care less about them, especially after the Soviet Union started fighting with mainland China and they had conflicts and they didn't like each other anymore. You know, sort of like this enemy of my enemy is sort of my friend. The Republic of China does not care about Vietnam, you know, being communist or Cuba being communist. They don't have a vendetta against North Korea, no more than any other country in the world, I guess. 
So when President Tsai and President Chiang both said they were anti-communist, it was really just directed towards mainland China. However, Chiang's anti-communism was directed by the notion to peacefully reunify with mainland China under the three principles of the people. So remember last week when I talked about the KMT's ideology and the three principles and how that was what they were founded on? So, you know, back in President Chiang's time, his government would say, you know, peace. He, they would basically push for this policy or this rhetoric of peacefully reunifying with China under the three principles of the people. And the three principles of people, like I mentioned last week, had to do with the idea of one unified Chinese body, despite its diverse ethnic, ethnic groups. It is one China, one China and one people. The idea that the right to govern were in the hands of the people. And lastly, that the government has the obligation to provide for the needs of the people in terms of welfare, in terms of a prosperous life, in terms of a healthy life and a comfortable life. So the three principles of the people is basically this idea of a democratic government that is um, unified by its, its, this idea of a one nation and a government that provides for the people, more so than the American government provides for its people. They believed, uh, the KMT believed that you know, their idea of the democracy was slightly different from the United States, or at least they used to believe that. You know, not, not really anymore. They don't know the difference. So, you know, President Chiang's goal when he was saying anti-communists to save Taiwan was to establish Taiwan as a beacon of the three principles and prove that the three principles democracy could flourish in China and in Chinese society. It was also from the, the identity that President Chiang had for himself and for the people of Taiwan that they were Taiwanese and that they were also Chinese, that these two things did not conflict. You know, this can be seen when he warmed up relations with mainland China, you know, not to kiss up to the Chinese Communist Party, but to allow vets to return to their native villages or native towns or native cities in mainland China that they, they, that they had not seen since they fled to Taiwan almost 30, 40 years ago. President Tsai is different. You know, at least President, President Tsai, you know, and the DPP, you know, they don't have the notion. Or what I meant to say, President Tsai, and at least, if not President Tsai, the DPP, but also most likely President Tsai, they don't have the notion to peacefully reunify with mainland China under the three principles, or prove that the three principles can flourish in China for Chinese people. In fact, most of them will not even say that they are Chinese people. So, you know, I talked about this in uh, episode one as well. You know, that's the DPP stance. So while neither President Chiang or President Tsai were against communism, they were both against the Communist Party. But President Chiang was against the Chinese Communist Party. And President Tsai and her party is against China, not just the Communist Party. In the past, critics accused that KMT so critics now accused KMT in the past of using the pretense of anti-communism to stifle freedom of speech, political dissent, and to outlaw the formation of any other political group or political party. And, you know, that was what they called the white terror stage. Today, the DPP uses the pretense of anti-communism or anti-China to stifle freedom of speech, to shut down news broadcast stations, to weaken opposition parties like the KMT, and to frame every single political issue as if it was either pro-China or against China, and therefore against Taiwan or pro-Taiwan. So when President Chiang says that he's anti-communist, he's against the Chinese Communist Party, but he is not against China and its people. When President Tsai says she's anti-communist, she is against 
China. She doesn't care about the people in China. She has no desire to reunify with them or to prove that a democracy and a Chinese society can work. The only similarities between them are that neither of them are really against the idea of communism across the world, and that their parties in their respective eras, the KMT in the past, the DPP used today, used the idea of anti-communism to stifle dissent in every aspect of life. I think the DPP should really evaluate why they are against China. If being against China is really for the benefit of Taiwan and its people, or if they are just saying, which I think they are, if they're just saying anti-China as a calling card, as an ideology to wrap their political party and gain votes. And for the KMT, some of the criticism against them these days is not entirely untrue. Why does it seem that you are not as harsh towards the Chinese Communist Party and its policies and its actions that are either targeted towards you or other people? What is the KMT stance towards the Chinese Communist Party today? What is their chance towards China, the country, and its people today. They need to clarify this as well. All right, well, that brings it up for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Um, I really appreciate each and every one of you listening to this podcast. Um, please subscribe. And, you know, if you're interested, you know, please subscribe so you can be updated to, uh, you know, be updated whenever a new episode comes out. This podcast is available on all your favorite streaming sites and YouTube. You can find the links in my anchor page so if you just search up the evan lamb show on google you'll find the anchor page you'll find the apple podcast page if you've searched up on youtube you'll find me on youtube as well but yeah thank you all for listening and i'll catch you on next week's episode have a great week everyone